No, at least it's not raining outside yet. <laughs> the sherry. <laughs> Cheers. Way to go. That's a laser laser. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. administrators and policy setters in the institution. So anyone who has issues pertaining to research and scholarship at the Smithsonian is welcome to contact Melissa Songer or your unit representative to raise questions. We are your advocates. To start off our fall series, we welcome David L. Pawson, a senior zoologist at the National Museum of Natural History. He came to the Smithsonian in 1964 after completing a PhD at Victoria University in New Zealand. During his career as a marine biologist, Dr. Pawson has specialized in research on sea stars, sea urchins, sea cucumbers, and their relatives. He has spent considerable time at sea on research ships and has made more than 150 dives in deep sea submersibles to depths of in excess of two miles. He has lectured extensively on ocean exploration and on conservation of ocean resources. Dr. Pawson has served as the Associate Director for Science and as the Acting Director of the National Museum of Natural History. He is a recipient of the Polar Medal and is a faculty member of Harvard University and American University. Please let, uh, join me in welcoming Dave Pawson. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Matt Randy. Thanks very much, Wendy, for that introduction. And uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming. Um, I, uh, unfortunately, my co-conspirator, uh, my wife, Doris, uh, is not well and can't be here today. Um, as I go through this talk, I'll use the expression we quite a lot. And uh, I've heard it said that uh, only Queen Victoria uh, poets and people with tapeworms uh, can <laughs> use can use the word we and get away with it, but uh, when I say we, I'll be meaning Doris and me. Um, okay. The albatross. Uh, there she is, parked at uh, Woods Hole, Massachusetts in about 1886 or so. And that's the ship we're going to be dealing with today. Uh, this is the National Museum of Natural History. For those of you who haven't, haven't visited it, uh, there it is. Uh, 
And we have an enormous collection of marine animals at the National Museum of Natural History. It was began in the 1840s with the US Exploring Expedition collections. And it's the world's largest marine collection with about 30 million invertebrates and 3 million vertebrates. And it's the world's best marine collection, at least some of us believe that's the case. Uh, a lot of it's computerized, but it still needs a lot of work. Um, I've been here since 1964 for 47 years, and I've been wandering through the collections quite a lot during that time. Um, my interest is in animals called echinoderms, which include such iconic beasts as sea stars and sea urchins and sea cucumbers and so forth. And our echinoderm collections uh, cover about two miles of shelving, the ones that are in alcohol, in bottles, and about 2,000 square feet of floor space up to a height of about seven feet. Everywhere in those collections uh, are animals that have been collected by the albatross. If you go to the Zoology Museum at Harvard University, the collections there are smaller, but you'll also see albatross stuff everywhere. Waldo Schmidt was a member of the Department of Zoology in our museum for many years. Um, he died uh, in 1977. Um, I overlapped with Waldo for about 13 years at the museum, and we talked uh, thousands of times about thousands of things. Uh, he spent three years on the albatross uh, in, from 1911 to 1914, and I don't recall ever once uh, the name of that ship coming up in our conversations, unfortunately. And then uh, Joel Hedgepeth. Some of you may know, may have known Joel. He was a great marine ecologist who single-handedly stopped Pacific Gas and Electric Company from building a nuclear power plant at Bodega Bay in California, right on top of the San Andreas Fault. Um, I got to know Joel uh, quite well in the 1960s and 70s especially, and he died in 2006. Um, in preparing to give a short talk at the 2008 Hedgepeth Memorial celebration at Scripps Institution in California about Joel's relationship with the Smithsonian, I did some rummaging in the Smithsonian archives and found a bunch of letters from Hedgepeth to our Waldo Schmidt written in the early 1940s. At that time, Joel has his heart set on writing a book on the albatross and its people many of whom he knew well and he had already interviewed, not just scientists but also several crew members of the ship. Waldo Schmidt encouraged him in this effort. Joel applied to the Carnegie Institution for support to cover him while he wrote the book. Um, in his letter to Waldo, he says, uh, asking Waldo to write a letter of recommendation, he says, I trust it will not be asking too much for you to write the professional letter for me. I'm also curious to see how my project is received by the judges, Harlow Shapley, Waldemar Kempfert, and Donald Culross Petey, as I have roundly insulted both Kempfert and Petey in print. <laughs> so. Unfortunately, Joel didn't get the grant. And as he was looking for a job, um, he had to abandon that project, and he never picked it up again. Um, after his death, his papers were, uh, were uh, donated to the Scripps Institution of Oceanography archives. Um, they haven't arrived yet, three years later, and uh, Doris and I are waiting for them to arrive so we can pounce on them and see what kind of uh, material he had on the albatross. 
Then um, here's a picture of Austin Clark, who was a curator in our museum uh, for many years, from 1908 until 1954. He was an expert on echinoderms, starfish, and so forth. And he was also on a seven-month cruise on the Albatross to uh, Alaska and Japan. And it was um, about three or four years ago now when the Albatross sailed into uh, our lives. Uh, when we obtained for the Smithsonian a mass of personal and professional papers of Austin Clark's. Um, among these papers, of which there were about 15 boxes, which essentially doubled the Smithsonian archive on that particular gentleman, were several dozen letters written by Clark to his new bride from the Albatross on its 1906 cruise to Alaska and Japan. These long letters are a rare and exciting glimpse into life and, and research on board the ship. So in the course of working on a biography of Clark, we decided to take a look at the relationship between the Albatross and the Smithsonian Institution. It has occurred to us that there are several books about other great expeditions, the Challenger Expedition of 1872 to 1876, Agassiz's wonderful two-volume account of the Blakes expeditions in the 1870s, but no books on the achievements of the Albatross as seen through the eyes of people who were there, so as far as we know. Dean Allard's 1978 book on Spencer Baird and the Albatross, and a superb 1999 issue of the Marine Fisheries Review, nicely summarized how the ship came to be and the type of work that she did. I have no idea what Doris's and my intentions are at this stage, but I hope they're honorable. Um, so we're still working on this stuff, so this is very much uh, work in progress. Um, just a little bit of history I need to go through. Um, just for a minute, here's a cartoon from Punch Magazine in 1857, and it's called uh, Common Objects at the Seaside. And uh, here are all these ladies collecting stuff. And uh, back in those days, uh, several authors, both in, of course, in Europe and over here, uh, published books on seashore life. And people went down to the seashore and collected things. And at about the same time, um, people learned that they could bring animals home and keep them alive in aquaria even marine aquaria. The term aquarium was invented by Goss. And uh, they could keep them there until they died unfortunate and horrible deaths after a few days. The aquarium animals, not the people, of course. <laughs> um, after this, uh, there was great interest aroused in the deep sea, what lay out beyond the waves. And of course, there's been great interest in the deep sea since classical Greek and Roman times. Pliny and Aristotle wrote about that. Um, and uh, this gentleman here, Edward Forbes, who led a short but busy life, he died at the age of 39, um, was perhaps the world's first great deep sea biologist. And he published many papers on the deep sea. Uh, he and a co-author posthumously published a paper in which they suggested um, that there may be an azoic zone in the deep sea below a depth of about 1,800 feet. Um, Forbes himself wasn't particularly enthusiastic about that notion, but they published it anyway. And, uh, it was based on information they had gained in the Aegean Sea, in the eastern Mediterranean, when they were sampling mud at increasing depths. And they found as they got deeper and deeper, the number of animals in the mud samples decreased and decreased until at around 1,800 feet, the mud contained nothing. So this one set of observations was the basis for their notion. Um, that was quickly disproved, this notion of an azoic zone, by uh, expeditions uh, off of England uh, off of the UK in 1868 
and also over here in 1868, over here by Louis Agassiz and, uh, and a man called Count uh, Portalis. Um, there were still a lot of theories going around about the deep sea. Was it a haven for living fossils, for example? What, what was living down there? Um, uh, were there zones that contained no life? Um, there were several other things that needed to be addressed. And uh, under the um, influence of uh, Wyville Thompson, a British uh, Navy ship called the Challenger uh, spent three and a half years circumnavigating the globe, taking numerous uh, samples in great depths and uh, disproving all of the current weird theories at that time. And the scientific results of the Challenger expedition each one of which, each volume of which looks like a family Bible. Uh, there are about 50 volumes, and uh, they are still standard reference works today. Over here on this side of the, the pond, uh, uh, Louis Portalis and Louis Agassiz um, uh, were uh, combining forces to explore the deep sea whenever they could using various vessels. Um, then uh, Spencer Baird comes on the scene in 1871. Uh, when he was 48 years of age, he lobbied Congress uh, to form a fish commission, U.S. Fish Commission. And uh, Congress uh, formed the fish commission and appointed him. Uh, he was appointed the uh, head of the fish commission by Ulysses S. Grant. Um, Baird was the assistant secretary of the Smithsonian uh, beginning in 1850. And he held that post uh, until 1878 when he became the secretary on the death of Joseph Henry. He was secretary for nine years until his death in 1887. So at the same time as holding this very busy job as assistant secretary and secretary of the Smithsonian, he was also head of the U.S. Fish Commission. And he did both jobs very well indeed. He added enormous collections to the Smithsonian during his career here. Box, literally boxcars full of specimens were arriving regularly in Washington. Um, I don't think the first secretary, Joseph Henry, was particularly happy about some of these collections or the quantity of the collections, but the very bulk of the collections stimulated the formation of the U.S. National Museum. So these huge jobs um, kept Baird very busy. Um, uh, and then in 1877, he was the government's chief scientific witness in a hearing to determine how much the government owed Canada for the right to fish in the waters of British Columbia and Newfoundland. The resulting sum of $5.5 million uh, was regarded by Baird as shockingly unjust, and Baird argued that the treaty between Canada and the U.S. for fishing rights should not be renewed uh, on the due date of 1885. Instead, he wanted to locate new Western Atlantic fishing grounds in U.S. waters that were, that were as far removed from Canada as possible. He also sponsored fisheries research at Woods Hole, and a laboratory was founded there. Um, there's the laboratory in the middle, residence there. I noted the residence is almost as large as the laboratory, which is interesting. And there's the albatross there. Um, uh, he repeatedly argued Baird, that scientific knowledge acquired was of great value in the development of successful commercial fisheries. So he was a great fan of fisheries research. In 1880, he requested from Congress the funds necessary to construct an ocean-going fisheries research vessel, arguing that new fishing grounds needed to be found 
and that the existing grounds needed to be better understood and more wisely exploited. In 1882, Congress appropriated $103,000. By late 1881, the final plans for the vessel were presented to Baird, and Baird had an active role in designing the ship. He had to go back to Congress for an additional appropriation, a supplemental request, and uh, he listed six functions for this vessel. One, study of known fishing areas. Two, finding new areas in the Atlantic uh, and the Pacific for commercial fisheries. Um, major economic benefits would accrue to everybody. Further development of U.S. fisheries would make use of Canadian waters unnecessary. The Albatross would be a major national security asset available in time of war. Uh, I'd just like to say here that she was taken over by the Navy again um, in uh, for the Spanish-American War, and she served actively for three weeks during that war in port at the time. <laughs> um, and the final thing was that basic scientific interest uh, could be uh, met. Uh, discovery of numerous new forms of animals was inevitable. So the albatross, there she is, uh, was uh, commissioned in, on November 11, 1882, and she had trial runs on December 82 and January 83. She was an iron trim screw vessel um, rigged as a brigantine, 234 feet long and 27 feet wide, and she had a cruising range of about 3,200 miles. She burned enormous quantities of coal, and uh, she could make 10 knots, which is about 11 and a half miles an hour. And she carried a crew of 60 officers and men, all of, which, all of whom were Navy people. The Navy crew, na naval crew on the, on the Albatross were never very happy because they felt that serving on the ship was denying them the uh, uh, promotions that they might otherwise get on a, on a uh, warship. Um, the Albatross was the first government vessel to be equipped with electric light. She had a 51-volt electric system that had been designed by Thomas Edison. She had an ice-making machine and a desalination plant for converting seawater into drinking water. Richard Rathbun of the Smithsonian Institution, we'll hear a little bit about more in a moment, published two papers in 1883 enthusiastically describing the Albatross as the most perfect floating workshop and laboratory for scientific purposes ever constructed. And we are justified in predicting for it a long life of usefulness to science a prophetic statement, for she was put into service in 1883 and worked for a total of 38 years until decommissioning in 1921. The Albatross occupied thousands of research stations in the Western Atlantic and in the Pacific. She was in the Western Atlantic from 1883 until 1887, and then she sailed around Cape Horn to San Francisco, and she was based in the Pacific Ocean um, until 1917 when she came back through the Panama Canal in World War I and was based in Cuba to patrol the Gulf and Caribbean. She worked off the East Coast again until she was decommissioned in 1921. According to Joel Hedgepeth in a popular article published in 1945, the roster of scientists who sailed on the Albatross was like a who's who of American zoology. I'm going to talk in a moment about the Smithsonian people, but non-Smithsonian people include such luminaries as Ritter, Heath, Nutting, Bigelow, Roy Chapman Andrews, Verrill, Gilbert, Merriam, Agassiz, 
Mayer, Snyder, Kofoid, and Torrey, to name a few. Some of you will be familiar with some of those names. We have uh, hidden away out in our warehouse uh, out in Landover, Maryland, a model of the albatross that was presented to Baird in 1883. It is a gorgeous wooden model, and it, um, we uh, were involved in making a TV documentary about the albatross a couple of years ago, and this model was brought out and filmed then. Um, it's, it's in magnificent condition. It's as if it had been built yesterday, this thing, and it's uh, you know, 130 years old. Um, the model is nine feet long, so you can't just sort of carry it around with you. And uh, when, when um, Joel Hedgepeth wrote his article in 1945, it was on display here in the Smithsonian, presumably in the Natural History Museum. And it's been on display again once since, and I think we should have it on permanent display somewhere. Okay, the Edison Electrical Plant, there she is in all her glory. And, uh, Nobody trusted the electrical system, so the ship had a full complement of oil lamps as well, to, uh, just in case. But they did have one innovation. Um, they had a, a lamp electric light enclosed in a, a housing, and they could lower it 100 feet into the ocean to attract uh, animals, and they could net them up as they came along. Um, so the ship was very advanced in many ways, but in others, she, she returned to her old old roots, and uh, Doris and I were horrified when we saw this picture of the so-called berthing deck of the ship. There's a large open space here, uh, sort of midships, and um, these over here are hammocks, and up on the ceiling you can just barely see some hooks which they would use to swing the hammocks from, and 60 crew members would sleep here in this area. Um, so that you could get used to that, I would guess. But what we also found out was that behind this companionway here, there's an enormous winch, and it's the winding winch for the wire, the 27,000 feet of steel wire. And the winch, and this was a take-up winch, the main winch for pulling the net in and so forth was up on the deck, and then the, the wire would be fed down here. This winch would make an enormous amount of noise, all winches do. And there was a pulley here around which the wire wrapped, and the wire, the bare wire went there, not very safe. And on one of Austin, on Austin Clark's crews, this pulley exploded into a thousand pieces, and uh, fortunately the, there was nobody there on, on the berthing deck at the time. But how these men learned to, uh, to cope with this winch going literally night and day um, beats us. We'd rather not think about it too much. Um, okay, that was the berthing deck. Here's the wardroom. There were many adventures in the wardroom, of course. Uh, there was a skylight up above here, and the skylight would regularly break during rough weather, and water would pour into the wardroom. At one point uh, during uh, Walter Fisher's cruise in 1902 to Hawaii, there was two feet of water sloshing around in the, in the wardroom here. And there were many adventures at the table, um, soup, dishes flying all over the place, people flying all over the place. Uh, in rough weather. The Albatross is a very lively ship. She was very good in coping with heavy seas, but uh, uh, she bounced around a great deal. There were two laboratories on the ship, um, which was sort of uh, unusual also, of course. There was an upper laboratory and a lower laboratory, and each of them was about 400 square feet. And this meant that an enormous amount of space that might otherwise be given over to other things um, was taken up with laboratories. And so the albatross had limited storage 
for coal, and she was constantly having to take on coal. And her decks were loaded always with bags full of coal. They had nowhere else to put them. Um, off the stern in later years, and then off the side in earlier years, there was the so-called Sigsby sounding engine, which was a, um, a, a winch uh, full of piano wire. And they would um, lower a lead weight to the bottom on the piano wire. And the weight had a little mud sampler attached to it so that the, they would pay out the wire. And the weight would sink to the bottom. And they could read the depth and so forth. And it was a very accurate machine. And it would come up, once you have a mud sample, you know that you've hit the bottom. And uh, they also could take uh, deep water temperatures, too, and they're reading them there. Uh, the sampling devices were sort of traditional things that have been perfected on various other American research ships, such as uh, a trawl here called the Blake Trawl, which was used um, most of the time. They lost several of them. Uh, but uh, you know, just wire breaking and getting hung up on rocks and so forth. And another device they used was um, this one, a letter from Austin Clark to his wife, a set of mops, a set of tangles that they would drag along the bottom to entangle spiny animals. And uh, on one cruise, apparently on, on Clark's cruise, this thing became hung up on a rock or something like that um, with a force of about six tons, apparently. Apparently the ship listed like this. And uh, one, of the, one of the crew members yelled, if it breaks, don't all uh, cheer at once. You know, the captain might hear us. <laughs> they didn't like working on the albatross. So, okay. Um, and there she is. Uh, she had uh, two, oh, sorry, what do I do now? I don't know how to get back into, uh, <laughs> thanks, up into the slideshow. Here yeah. Oh, thanks much. Cheers. Thanks. Um, okay. She, she had two booms. Uh, one here for carrying small nets, plankton nets, and other near-surface nets. Um, and she had a large one here. You can't see the wire going down to the water there, maybe. But that's towing the deep-sea dredge. And they also used hand nets for collecting. Um, they used rifles. They shot everything. They used shotguns. They collected onshore, offshore, wherever they could. George Brown Good was another, was another wonderful Smithsonian asset. Um, he came to Washington in 1872 as a volunteer in the US Fish Commission. In 1873, he joined the Smithsonian as an assistant curator, and he was one of the small coterie of men who lived in the castle. When Baird became secretary in 1877, Good took on the work of forming the U.S. National Museum. In 1881, when the new building was completed, Good, age 30, became the assistant director. In 1887, Baird appointed Good as assistant secretary of the Smithsonian, also in charge of the U.S. National Museum. As an administrator and as a scientist, Good was unexcelled. He was also very interested in the principle of museum administration. And among his more notable quotes is, a finished museum is a dead museum. One of his best. Upon Baird's death in 1887, Good was also appointed commissioner of fisheries at age 36, in addition to his Smithsonian duties, just like Baird. Good had assisted Baird in all aspects of the work of the albatross during these years. 
and in addition, publications on fishes flowed from Good's pen, perhaps the most important being Good and Bean's 1895 massive paper called Oceanic Ichthyology, a treatise on deep-sea and pelagic fishes of the world, based chiefly on the collections made by the steamers Blake, Albatross, and Fishhawk. In two volumes, comprising more than 600 pages and 123 plates. Good, uh, to our horror, um, died as a very young man. Um, he had poor health uh, to, for the last several years of his life. It didn't slow him down, um, but he died as a relatively young man. Richard Rathbun was another asset. Uh, he became curator of marine vertebrates in 1881 at the new National Museum, and he became assistant secretary of the Smithsonian in 1897 and director of the National Museum in 1901. Rathbun oversaw the design and construction of the current National Museum of Natural History. He wrote some of the earliest papers describing material collected by the albatross, and he served on the albatross in 1883 and again in 1884 off the east coast of the U.S. And Rathbun wrote two papers, uh, short papers in 1885, describing some sea urchins and sea lilies collected by the albatross noting like Agassiz had before that there were extraordinary populations of sea lilies in Hav near Havana within sight of the city in relatively shallow water. And then a bunch of other Smithsonian scientists who sailed on the albatross. Tauten Bean um, was an ichthyologist who became a curator of, first curator of fishes at the Smithsonian in 1877. He was an excellent researcher and collections manager and he published many important papers on fishes with George Brown Good, as I mentioned. He wrote the, the Bible on fish curation, directions for collecting and preserving fish. His brother Barton Bean became an assistant curator of fishes, a position he held until 1932. Talton Bean was on the Albatross in 1885. James Benedict, in the middle of the top row there, was an expert in crustaceans, and he became an assistant curator here in 1899 after serving four years as resident naturalist on the albatross. Theodore Gill was a professor of zoology at Georgetown University. He was associated with the Smithsonian, though, for more than 50 years. After being involved in moving this fish collection three times, Gill told Secretary Baird that he wanted nothing more to do with the collection. He was a fanatical researcher, publishing more than 500 papers, and he was in the albatross in 1883. Leonard Steiniger was, um, came here in 1884 as a curator for birds, and then he later became a curator of reptiles, and then later than that, curator of reptiles and amphibians. In 1911, he became the head curator of zoology. Uh, he made several trips to Alaska in the 1880s and 1890s, uh, using the albatross for transportation in 1895 and 96. And then Frederick True, um, which is a wonderful picture. I love that hat. Um, in 1881, he was hired as a librarian and as the acting curator of mammals. And he became the head curator of zoology from 1897 to 1911. And he studied living and fossil marine mammals. And he was on the albatross in 1895 from San Francisco to the Bering Sea and, and back. OK, I'm going to have to um, cut this off in a few minutes. But uh, Alexander Agassiz, at Harvard University was the first person to make truly scientific rather than fisheries-related cruises on the albatross. Agassiz wanted to take, the, take over the albatross 
and he was told by the Fish Commission that he could certainly do it, provided he supplied all of the coal, covered the cost of refitting the ship before she sailed, and paid part of the running expenses. In return, he would direct the crews and get a first set of the collections. So he did it. And he ended up making three cruises and paying literally uh, millions of dollars for the privilege of doing so. Walter Fisher uh, was a great, oh, this is Agassiz was a friend of Austin Clark at our museum. And this was a letter that he wrote to Clark from Cairo, from a hotel in Cairo in Egypt in 1910. And uh, it's highly critical of the way the albatross is being run at that time, of the administration of the ship and of the crew and of the scientists that were on board the ship. And then he has a PTO at the bottom of this letter. And you turn the letter over and it says, uh, Mr. Clark, please destroy this letter after you've read it. And, uh, <laughs> and we have it. And uh, on great advice from uh, Marcel LaFollette, uh, we've decided to publicize it. <laughs> um, this was one of the sea lilies described by Agassiz. Uh, Walter Fisher we, uh, was a great starfish uh, scientist, and he was not associated with the Smithsonian, except that he described hundreds and hundreds of new species of starfish almost all of which are deposited here in our museum. He was a great friend, of, a lifelong friend of Austin Clark, too. And uh, we f could never find any of Fisher's papers in California. We went to Stanford. We went to the Hopkins Marine Station um, and um, other places. We found nothing of Fisher's. And then we accidentally found a bunch of his papers sandwiched in with his father's papers right here in the Library of Congress Manuscript Division. His father. Um, Albert Fisher was the co-founder of the National Biological Survey, so his papers are there in enormous numbers. Um, anyway, Fisher was on the 1902 cruise of the Albatross to Hawaii, and uh, there is a crew member there, and these guys in the pip helmets are scientists. And we have no idea what Fisher's rear end looked like, so we can't tell if he's one of those three people, but he, he possibly is. But uh, at the time, he wasn't interested in starfish. He was a birdman. He went ashore on Laysan uh, Island in the Hawaii chain and was surrounded by millions of seabirds. He was in paradise. Uh, he spent eight days there. And the administrator of the island, uh, Fisher, became a great friend because this guy had an enormous supply of gin, which he provided to Fisher on request. Austin Clark, um, here he is in Yokohama. Um, uh, he had his photograph taken there when he, was got, when he went ashore from the Albatross. And uh, we found among his papers a list of topics that he was going to talk about, apparently about his Albatross cruise. And uh, many of the things here, like the soup, um, uh, the foresail, we know about the loss of the lifeboats and the foresail, and we know a lot about heavy weather from his letters and the, the captain. We don't know about horrible doubts or jettison of silks and uh, so forth. Um, and the surgeon's fortunate discovery, we have no idea what that is either. <laughs> I hope it was in time. Um, when you, as so many of you here know, when you're looking through archival materials, you find things that can be really confusing. And uh, here are two pictures of uh, Austin Clark. One of them was dated 1901, and the other is 1904. And Doris and I thought that there are two possibilities here, of course. And one is that one of these dates is incorrect. And the other is that both of them are correct, and that Clark could stand in one place for three years without. Uh, 
but we we concluded that 1901 was probably the correct date. And uh, so he was married to Mary Wendell up in the 90, early in March 1906, and uh, she was a first cousin of um, Oliver Wendell Holmes, well connected, and. Uh, within a month of their wedding, they came across to California, and Clark was to join the Albatross for the seven-month cruise to Japan. And at, when he was offered the job of naturalist on the Albatross, he wrote back to uh, to Barton Everman, the guy who was organizing this cruise, and um, and declined the invitation. But they must have upped the ante a little because the next thing we know is they went to California, and Clark jumped onto the ship. Um, his wife accompanied him to California. Um, before they sailed, and uh, they stayed with friends in Berkeley for a few days. And then on the last night, they went downtown to San Francisco and stayed in a hotel so they could be near the ship, so he could board it the next day. Well, they were awakened the next morning at 5 a.m. by the San Francisco earthquake. And uh, they survived that, of course. And um, for the next two weeks, the Albatross was involved in humanitarian work uh, ferrying people away from the great fire that overcame San Francisco after the earthquake, transporting people across San Francisco Bay. Clark was on shore helping to save some of the collections of the California Academy of Science. And he was moving, he and I don't know who else, was moving collections um, out of the devastated building um, to his uncle's house on Russian Hill in San Francisco. And apparently his uncle's house was one of the very few on Russian Hill that didn't burn down. So uh, some of the collection was saved anyway. Um, and this, this picture is well known, I'm sure, to almost many of you. <laughs> uh, it's uh, Louis Agassiz, the great uh, Harvard zoologist. There was a statue of him at Stanford University up, on a, up, on, up above here, along with a statue of uh, Alexander Humboldt great explorer. Humboldt stayed in place. Agassiz took a nosedive. Um, and uh, uh, David Starr Jordan, the president of um, Stanford University at the time and also a great fish scientist and a great man, was standing looking at the statue. And one of his professors was standing beside him. And this unnamed professor, Jordan didn't name the professor in his autobiography, um, looked at the statue and said, you know, I've long considered Louis Agassiz in the abstract. Now I can consider him in the concrete. <laughs> and, uh, uh, <clears throat> well, Agassiz's uh, head was almost undamaged. His nose was broken off, so they glued it back on, and he's back up there again in all his glory. And it was sort of ironic uh, coincidence, perhaps, that two lifelong friends, uh, Austin Clark, was in San Francisco, and Walter Fisher was here, a student um, at, uh, at Stanford, uh, and they didn't know each other until about three or four years later. Uh, but they both went through the earthquake. Um, they both ended up, they both were very enthusiastic bird people, ornithologists. They published many papers in their early years, and then they both became um, echinoderm people. Um, Fisher, uh, Six days after the earthquake, uh, Stanford University was closed down for four months, but, but some things were still going on. Six days after the earthquake, Fisher had two days of written exams for his PhD, and then another day of oral exams. And he said he managed to pass them, in a letter to his father, he managed to pass them all, and he doesn't remember a thing about it. You know. 
Okay. The cruise track that Clark took in 1906 was from San Francisco up to here and then across to the Aleutian Islands and Kamchatka and around Japan and back. Um, I'll have to cut some things out here, but here's one of Clark's letters back to his wife. He wrote every day over seven months to his wife, um, Mary, and uh, the letters are just wonderful. Uh, Doris, my wife, has uh, transcribed them all now, and they make a file of 120 uh, single-spaced uh, computer-printed pages, and we are publishing that collection of letters in the Marine Fisheries Review soon, we hope. Um, on the way back across the Pacific from, uh, from Japan, uh, the uh, captain of the ship, uh, Leroy Garrett, was lost overboard. Um, the sea was very rough as they left Japan, and uh, they were one day out of Honolulu, and the, it was starting to lie down. So after dinner one evening, Captain Garrett went up onto the poop deck here, and he was lying on a, um, a deck chair having a cigar. And he, it was still a little rough, so he had tied the deck chair to the port side rail. And uh, apparently the ship gave a lurch, and it tore the deck chair away from the lashing, and the chair slid very fast across the poop deck and hit the starboard rail and threw him overboard. And he was never found. Um, Clark said uh, in his one letter to his wife that uh, uh, it was a sad day for all of us on board. I was talking to Mr. Hepburn and Mr. Snyder when we heard a cry, faint and indistinct, immediately after we heard man overboard. They actually did a head count and found nobody missing before somebody realized it was the captain. Um, this, it took about a mile to turn the ship around, and uh, by the time they got back there, it was getting dark. Um, and another coincidence, uh, Walter Fisher, Clark's buddy on the 1902 cruise, Another uh, officer was lost overboard off that cruise. The officer was trying to get was up here on the poop deck, trying to get uh, sun sights, and um, I don't know what happened. He was lost overboard somehow. Might have been rather rough. So when they pulled into Honolulu after uh, this long cruise, um, the ship was uh, sailing a quarantine flag because there had been typhoid in the last port they had visited in Japan. Um, the hull was rusty, the sails were moldy, they had lost their captain, and when they came in, the people on the dock were astounded because they had had a message that the albatross had gone down in a typhoon in the Sea of Japan. And that's true, another a Russian ship called the Albatross with one S uh, had, had gone down in the Sea of Japan. Okay, um, Unfortunately, I'll, I just want to take another five minutes if I could because we still have a few people to go through. Paul Barch um, was a great mollusk man at our museum, and he was on the Albatross uh, cruise to the Philippines, 1907 to 8, and another later cruise in 1911 off California. I mainly wanted to show you this picture of Barch uh, <laughs> that was taken in Cuba, and apparently the um, cheesecloth swimsuit was standard issue for the Smithsonian. And in our museum, our naturalistry museum shop, we have various colors of that that are available <laughs> at a discount. Um, Waldo Schmidt, uh, great Waldo Schmidt, um, was a great uh, crab crustacea man and uh, wonderful scientist and a wonderful human being as well. He was, as I mentioned, he was on the Albatross from 1912 through 1914. Um, just a word about mascots. The Challenger, the deep sea, the British ship that went around the world, 
had several mascots, including a uh, dog and a parrot and a cassowary. And there were mascots on the albatross as well. In Agassiz's first cruise, there was a monkey, a parrot, three cats, and and a what? Agassiz. Oh, and an Agassiz. Oh, I guess. Yes, yeah, that's interesting. Anyway, they also had, Agassiz said there was a huge hairy and horny goat on board. He said the goat was one of 12 that had been given to them by the chief at the Marquesas Islands. He said that they ate 10 of the goats, and they kept two as mascots. <laughs> one of them was washed overboard, and uh, Buck the goat survived for many years. And Buck, uh, there are lots of stories about Buck. Um, I don't have time to tell many of them, but I'd like to tell some of them. On, uh, on Austin Clark's cruise in 1906, uh, the crew were told not to feed Buck any more toilet paper because they were running short of that commodity. <laughs> um, Buck was very vindictive. If you did something to him, he would get you later. And uh, uh, there was a story about the bosun who had just been paid in US dollars. He was going to go ashore somewhere. And, uh, he was teasing Buck with a dollar bill, holding it out and snatching it away and snatching it away, and Buck was trying to grab it. And the captain came out and started talking to the bosun, and the bosun stuck his money into his back pocket. And it didn't go all the way in. And uh, Buck edged his way around and ate $100 out of the guy's <laughs> pocket. So there is Buck with the great uh, jellyfish man and later great fish man, Henry Bigelow. Um, again, I knew Henry Bigelow for the last, in the last three years of his life, from 1964 to 67, when I was going up to Harvard quite a lot, and uh, um, I, didn't, I wasn't aware that he had been on the albatross either. And there's Buck the Goat there supervising. Um, okay. Jellyfish stings, uh, just one other thing. Uh, uh, Clark and two crew members were told to clear jellyfish away from one of the nets. They'd pulled up thousands of jellyfish. The three of them did it, and they were all badly stung by these jellyfish tentacles. I don't know if they had gloves on or not. But um, Clark and one of the crew were badly affected, um, but uh, they recovered within a 24 hours or so. But the third guy um, was having a hard time, so he went to the ship's doctor. And uh, in those days, the only treatment for inflammation was to paint the patient with picric acid. And the doctor did so. And the guy, Clark said in a letter to Mary that um, the fellow was, uh, was bright yellow in color all over, and his hair was green. And the doctor told him that not to worry, the color would fade in a few weeks, which is very reassuring, I'm sure. Um, and uh, uh, in one of his letters, Clark said, we are sick and tired of eating salmon because the, the albatross did a little salmon surveying up in the, the Aleutian Islands before crossing westwards in the Pacific. And uh, they had salmon all the time. And then one fellow went ashore on some island and came back with a small pig. And everybody was delighted. They were going to have a roast pig for dinner. What a wonderful change in the menu. Um, when it was served, it didn't smell very good. And Clark said, it tasted like rotten salmon. And he said, it had been a salmon-fed pig. You know, so there we are. OK. Um, just to wrap this up now, uh, Austin Clark, after a long career with this museum, he ended up uh, describing 170 new sea lilies uh, and related animals from albatross collections. And uh, just to give you an example of the influence of the albatross, uh, this is just summarizing 
various group, <laughs> major groups of echinoderms, starfish and brittle stars and so forth. Uh, and I'm not going to bore you with these numbers. I'm not going to bore you anymore. But about uh, 1,700 new species were described based on albatross collections. And this is 25% of all the echinoderms that we know in the world today were described from albatross collections. And uh, so you can see how influential that ship was. Um, so we have, uh, this is an old, this is our old collection back in the West Wing of the museum, which no longer exists. The West Wing exists, but the collection is, has moved. Um, we're, uh, we're very high on the albatross, as you can imagine. But we're still collecting new things and, uh, uh, from the deep sea. And the excitement that they felt, I think, when they were bringing their nets uh, full of unknown animals, I think you still feel today when you're pulling up a net and wondering what's in it. And I'll skip over that, but I just wanted to show you this one, which is a, uh, an animal that is being observed from a submersible by Porter Keir, the former director of our museum. Porter uh, came on many dives with us, and uh, he was very excitable, um, as you'll see. And we didn't have to delete any expletives from this uh, particular piece of video. Can you hear that? So that was Porter. Um, we've, uh, there are a lot of people, several people in our museum who are authorities on the albatross, and um, they've published several papers, uh, not only on the animals that were collected, but also on the ship itself. And I'd just like to certainly name uh, uh, David Smith and Vic Springer, um, Jeff Williams, and Lisa Palmer. And uh, these people, some of their contributions can be seen on the Division of Fishes website. Um, we have diaries and letters now from Austin Clark, Walter Fisher, Charles Kofoid, Alexander Agassiz, Joel. We're still looking for Hedgepeth, still awaiting Hedgepeth, and Waldo Schmidt. Uh, Willis Hobart, who's the editor of the Marine Fisheries Review, um, published this wonderful volume in 1999 on the albatross. And he is an albatross nut. And uh, he collects albatross-related things. And, uh, at an auction um, a few years ago, he paid a large amount of money for a, a crew member's hat, a U.S. Navy hat with albatross on it. Um, and unfortunately, um, a couple of years ago, his house was burgled. And among other things, the hat was taken. Um, and then um, uh, Joel Hedgepeth published two wonderful papers, uh, popular pa articles on the albatross. And uh, Smithsonian Networks has done a half-hour documentary and uh, we've published uh, one. We have another one in press on uh, Austin Clark. And uh, so I'd, just, I'd like to thank, um, first of all, Wendy Wick-Reeves and Jason Stieber uh, for inviting me to give this talk and numerous other people who have helped us along the way. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, if uh, there's time, I, you know.
Any questions? Yeah. Don. Did you really? You must be 95 years old. Are you there? No, did you really? That's fantastic. Yeah. Was he? Did he do a good job? Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Terrific. Um, yeah. They were they were they stopped and they went near newly formed islands and went ashore. Some of them were still quite hot, you know. So Yeah, they had a lot of adventures. Um John Burns from, from your department had met him also and stayed at his house. He was John was living in uh, in Baltimore, and he was still in high school as well. And uh, he had an interest in butterflies, just like Clark did. Yeah, Jim. Oh, sorry. Dave, you commented on the albatrosses inordinate consumption of coal. Yeah. Did the albatross ever use a sail for navigation? Yes, they did. They used, to, especially during the. Um, the late 1800s, um, you know, the 1880s and 1890s, they used the sails a lot to steady the ship, um, just like you'd use today if you had both forms of locomotion. But uh, after about 1900, they very seldom used them. Although Clark said in one of his letters that um, they put up the mainsail when they were coming back in the rough sea uh, from Japan, and it was there was a crack. And he saw the mainsail like a little white handkerchief disappearing over the horizon, you know. So, um, but apparently they, um, they, they did use them a lot, especially off the East Coast here in the 1880s. And um, here we are. Um, I think, I don't know about cruises before 1906. Well, the, uh, on Austin Clark's second voyage, I mean, on um, Alexander Agassiz's second voyage, they, they went to numerous Pacific islands. And down near Tonga, they, they, they took the largest, uh, the deepest sample, which was 25,500 feet. Um, and they pulled up a fragment of a sponge. And sponges only grow on the bottom. That's all the proof they had that they uh, had been on the bottom. Well, thanks very much. Cheers. Thank you. Oh. Yeah.